I dread going home to my hometown and getting a haircut because then they ask me about what I'm, what, oh, what do you do? Where do you live? And then I tell them and then they just sort of like, they say, oh, okay. They change the subject. They don't know what to make of it. I'm Anne McNamee-Keels. And I'm Stephanie Shavera. And this is Lapsed. A podcast about growing up Catholic. Today we are very excited to welcome a special guest onto the show. Abby Rampone has lived at two Catholic worker houses and the Women's Interfaith Residency Program at Union Theological Seminary. She currently lives at the Fireplace Community, an intentional community on the south side of Chicago, and works as a ministry coordinator at DePaul University. When she has time, Abby enjoys writing, rescuing cats, and cross-stitching. And Abby, along with Tess Gallagher-Clancy, is the co-creator of Left Catholic, a zine which draws on a variety of traditions to articulate a people-centered, anti-capitalist vision of the Catholic left. Abby, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I came upon Left Catholic in my social media life, (laughs) Um, and I was very excited to see it and very excited about sort of the voices amplified there and just very curious about who had created it. And when I saw that it was two women, even more excited. We would love to hear more about your own religious background, since this is often what we're talking about on the podcast, is growing up Catholic, whether or not you did grow up Catholic, sort of your relationship to Catholicism. And then we can talk a little more about your current projects. That sounds great. Let's do it. So yeah, the big first question is, did you grow up Catholic? (laughs) I did grow up Catholic, yes. (laughs) I grew up Catholic in Vermont. I'm from Vermont, from a small town. And so growing up rural Catholic, I think, is different than growing up in a city or a larger town where there might be a Catholic school or there might be a little bit more infrastructure. I grew up in a church that was really, really dying, I would say. A lot of older folks, not a lot of young people. People are moving away. People are sort of aging out of that community. Wow. Yeah, that is a really different vibe. So were your parents pretty devout? Do you feel like you were raised sort of very religiously Catholic or culturally Catholic or somewhere in between? My parents are very involved in my hometown church. My mom um, was and is the director of the choir. She plays acoustic guitar and sings for the choir. And my dad has had a number of volunteer roles with the church on the parish council in the Knights of Columbus. So they were very engaged with the community and got my sisters and I to be very engaged in the community. We helped teach CCD and things like that. CCD. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a Catholic school kid. I'm a CCD kid. So I got like need that representation. Stephanie's always excited about CCD. I can't say I was that excited about it. But not at the time, no. I loved, I loved doing the Christmas pageant. That was my favorite thing. I love helping to direct the Christmas pageant every year. We were just talking about this in our recent nativity episode just before Christmas because neither of us grew up with a pageant. No. I grew up in a very Catholic area on the southwest side of Chicago, and I don't feel like pageants were really much of a thing at the churches around me, and it always seemed like something that I saw on TV, and it was like, I didn't even totally understand what a Protestant was, but it was... (laughs) Same. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah it's like protestants get to dress up like mary and joseph and like that seems really exciting so i'm i'm so happy for you that you got to do the pageant that i would have been into that too oh it was so much fun it was so much fun we had we had our um stuffed sheep that we would bring out and the um shepherd's crooks were, were like candy cane decorations wrapped oh in um, um brown paper so i i loved doing that when i was younger and then when i was an older kid helping with that so I was I was engaged in some parts of the church life, but I wouldn't say that I had a very adult or deep relationship to it. Mm-hmm. It was sort of what we did every week. Mm-hmm. It was part of the routine. I wasn't particularly like devout in a sort of internal way. And when I went to college, that was when I started developing a more adult and intentional relationship with Catholicism in a sort of dissident, disengaged, complicated way, but I started thinking a lot more about what it meant to be and exploring that with friends who, some of them were Catholic, but many of them were women of other religious traditions who were similarly thinking about what it meant to be a woman in Islam or a woman in uh, modern Orthodox Judaism, for instance. Mm. So I would say that my sense of self as a Catholic woman really developed in those dialogical relationships with other women in college. Did you go to school for anything theological? No, I went to a secular liberal arts college in Massachusetts. I did not plan to study religion. I did not study religion in undergraduate, but I sort of fell into an interfaith student group and I met the chaplain to the college who became a mentor to me. He was Mm. a Presbyterian chaplain. And I just sort of ended up in a space that I had never anticipated. That's really exciting. I feel like so many people, it's when you go to college, you sort of, that's when you disengage from your faith and you have a very opposite trajectory there. Yeah, it was absolutely not what I expected. But I, I think it was in part because I started to get involved with social movements. I started to get involved with environmental justice work, with immigration justice, anti-racism things. And I started to learn from from the chaplain to the college, from other religious leaders at my college, that there was this long tradition of socially engaged religion, Mm -hmm. that liberation theology was something that I could look to and ground myself in, that there was this tradition where I could find roots for the things that I believed in. Mm -hmm the causes that I was starting to get passionate about, right? The resistance to oppression, I could say, oh, I'm, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. There is, there is a long and deeply rooted history of Christian and specifically Catholic resistance to oppression. And that got really exciting for me. I think about that all the time because I feel like as I got involved in causes in school, that made me feel more and more distant from the Catholic faith I was raised in because no one, I didn't learn about any of this stuff until much, 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 much later when I sought it out. It was never part of my education. And I really do think it would have made a huge difference to how I felt about being Catholic. Um, So it's really exciting to hear that that's what happened for you. Absolutely. I think I just got lucky. And I think there was something about being at a secular institution Mm -hmm. that enabled that. I think maybe, well, I never would have chosen to go to a Catholic university, but if I had, it might've been different. Maybe I would have been more resistant to to that if it had been the dominant culture. Yeah. I think this question of like, when do people choose to leave versus when do they choose to stay and try to, you know, find those parts that they do agree with, like the liberation theology, which I was lucky to have a 
tiny taste of that, I would say, in my high school experience with the Sisters of Mercy. But this question of like, when your values maybe don't align with a lot of what a lot of people with power in the church are are saying, when do you choose to leave versus when do you choose to stay and, and say, no, this is my church and, and this is how I understand the values? Yeah. So I guess what did drive you to stay and cont- remain um, someone who identified as Catholic? It's a really good question because I think the answer has changed so many times over the years. And when you were saying that, I started thinking, well, have I stayed? Am am I Catholic? I I think I'm Catholic, but <laughs> the Vatican claims you. I will tell you. So there's that. That's, that's true. <laughs> whether I whether I want them to or not, right? I do. <laughs> whether you want it or not. <laughs> I used to hate that question because I would get it a lot from progressive Protestants in divinity Mm. school, because I went to um, Union Theological Seminary, a progressive divinity school that it it is not affiliated with any specific denomination, but it is overwhelmingly liberal mainline Protestant. So a lot of my classmates grew up in liberal Protestant traditions that kind of defined themselves against the Catholic Church. So they would ask me why I stayed, why was I Catholic? And they would have sort of hostile ideas toward Catholic. That would be so annoying to me. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and this maybe this is me being contrary, and I didn't. I hated that because I was in that context. But now that I'm removed from it, I'm like, it's a good question. Why am I? <laughs> why? Why do I continue to identify as Catholic? I think early on in that journey, when I was in college, it was because maybe I was just at the beginning of it. I guess I, I was naive. I started reading Rosemary Radford Ruther and other Catholic feminist writers. I read Mary Daly. I started reading reading these feminist theologians Mm. and got excited about it, right? That was sort of the honeymoon period for me. Mm. I thought, wow, there is space for me here. This is really exciting. And and my mentor was a gay Presbyterian minister who had spent much of his adult career in a church that did not ordain LGBTQ people. It did later on in his um, ministry and his adult life, but for much of his ministry, he had been closeted. And so I saw, I saw his example. I saw my friends who were Muslim and feminists. And I saw, I saw a lot of people around me wrestling. And I saw the example of the writers I was reading. I thought, oh, this is possible. You know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's hard. Yeah, it, it's a tough place to be. But the struggle is beautiful or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I got into it. I, I got excited about it. I, and because I wasn't doing it by myself. Yes. And... Mm-hmm. It seemed possible. And then I went to divinity school because I wanted to go deeper. And I decided when I went to divinity school that I was going to deliberately immerse myself in Catholic spaces because my college experience was really in this interfaith student group. I, I hadn't really spent a lot of time in a Catholic space. So when I went to Union, which again was not a Catholic space, I decided I was going to get involved with church reform. I got on the board of Women's Ordination Conference. I started working for Call to Action. First, I did a young adult formation program through them, and then I started working for them. And I got involved with the Catholic Worker Movement Mm -hmm. and did my field education there, lived at Mary House, the Catholic worker in New York for a summer, one of the Catholic workers in New York. You know, that was about um, five years ago now that I started Divinity School. And I've had plenty of disillusionments with progressive or radical Catholic spaces. I... I'm still on that journey. I yeah. I am not in the honeymoon period anymore. I am very intimately familiar with both the possibilities and the heartbreak that comes with doing dissident Catholic work. Mm-hmm. So my answer right now, 
I, I don't have one well formulated for you. I live in a Catholic community. I work at a Catholic institution. I don't go to a Catholic parish. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. When I go to church, I go to a UCC Disciples of Christ Church with my partner, who is also considers himself half ca- half Catholic and half Protestant. <laughs> so that's a very long winded way to say. It. I don't know. <laughs> I love that though. I think like that's the most theological kind of answer, right? It's like an ongoing question with no mm-hmm. resolution, which I really do. I mean, we've talked about this before in relationship to other faiths where that feels very ingrained in them. But for so much of, I don't know about your Catholic upbringing, but ours was like, here's the answer. Just repeat it. Just say it over and over again. Like, don't question. So this like evolution you've gone on to being a questioning Catholic. I, I, I love that. It's it got a lot of beauty and a lot of autonomy, but it isn't one that's ingrained in the faith at all. So it does feel jarring sometimes. I think, unfortunately, it's the the culture of mm-hmm. maybe Catholic culture in the United States, maybe Catholic mm-hmm. culture yeah. in many places. I'm not sure. I don't think it's an inevitable part of Catholic culture. I don't think it's part of it's an inevitable part of our tradition. Right. And what we've inherited. Like there's all I always tell people that we're all cafeteria Catholics because you can't <laughs> claim the the enormity of this 2000 plus year tradition. Mm-hmm. Even though the Vatican wants to say that it controls the narrative and that 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 it provides the final word, there has always been dissent. You know, we mm-hmm. there is there is a long tradition of dissent. So I, I know that there is room for multiplicity. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes that gets de-emphasized. <laughs> yes, yes. Especially I do feel like in Catholic education for youth spaces. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I think there's a fear, or at least there was, I think, when I was growing up that if you overcomplicate it, kids just won't you'll confuse them. So you might as well just give them a very straightforward answer and like they can figure it out later. I remember my sophomore year of high school, we had a, it was the the Bible year, the year you brought your Bible uh, <laughs> to theology class every day and we're looking at the Bible. And the first day of class, my teacher told everyone that a lot of things in the Bible didn't literally happen, probably didn't literally happen. And like girls were almost in tears. <laughs> Like these wow. are very ancient stories and we cannot presume that all of it is fact and these were oral traditions and and you could just see people's faces like but there was definitely a flood right like definitely definitely Noah and the flood and she was like you know she went into a much more complicated answer that they did they didn't want and uh yeah wow. I think that's real that that evolution uh, so I I love the way that you are articulating that you're sort of still in that I think that's so important I'm very curious about left Catholic Yes. How did this zine come to be? And then also I want to know why a zine, because I, I'm just old enough to remember a time before Wi-Fi and before smartphones when zines were legitimately a thing uh, that were kind of exciting and popular. So yeah, would love to hear more. Yeah. So I think I should start the story where I met Tess. Yeah. So Tess and I both went to Union Theological Seminary. She was a first year when I was a third year. So we met in the fall of 2019. And I would say we clicked right away. I remember meeting her at Pub, which was like the weekly student mixer, game night, wine and beer, whatever, <laughs> on campus at Union. And I was kind of always excited when I met another Catholic at Union, because there were only a handful of us. And somebody told me, oh, there's there's a freshman Catholic over here. Let me introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> Not a freshman, a first year, a, yeah, new, a, new, sure. a newbie. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, so so they um, introduced me to Tess, and we yeah we really clicked, and we started hanging out. She would come and hang out with my intentional community, which was in the dorms at Union, the Women's Interfaith Residency. So we started spending time together. We were involved in sort of a, a discussion group of students that were supporting Bernie at the time. <laughs> Way back, it feels like such a long time ago. Doesn't it? <laughs> and yeah, and then the pandemic hit <laughs> in March 2020, of course. And the the school kicked us out. I moved in with my family in Vermont. But Tess and I kept in touch. And I had started working for Call to Action, this church reform organization, in January 2020. Before that, I had been involved in their young adult program, which was called Regeneration. Regeneration is for young Catholics under 40. It's a mentorship and leadership development program. And I had been very involved in that. I had done a big project as part of my experience in this young adult cohort. I had organized a conference for young adult Catholics at Union. So because because I'd, I'd gotten very involved, they brought me onto the staff. I started working there part-time remotely doing communications. And I then got tests to apply for regeneration a year or two later during the pandemic. So she did that whole experience remotely a year or two after me. And she had also had some experience in the Catholic worker movement. You know, I had I had done my field education at Mary House, the Catholic worker in New York. Tess had lived at a Catholic worker farm in Montana, where she's from. And we had more of an economic left analysis than many, not everybody, at Union. Union is a very progressive, a very liberal place. But Tess and I were sort of frustrated that a lot of people at Union lacked a strong anti-capitalist analysis. And we started talking about the same thing in progressive Catholic spaces mm-hmm. that progressive Catholics talked all about, you know, homophobia, gender justice, women's ordination, anti-racism. They would talk about these things, but they would rarely, if ever, bring capitalism into the analysis. Mm-hmm. And Tess and I strongly felt that we were missing something, mm-hmm. especially because the Catholic reform movement is predominantly a white middle, upper middle class movement mm-hmm. and an older movement. I remember reading a statistic about the people involved in church reform spaces, and I can't quote it for you exactly, but it's something about how the overwhelming majority of them have master's degrees. <laughs> so we felt that because of the positionality of people in these progressive Catholic spaces, because of the, the lack of political education for a lot of different reasons. Most people were just not talking about Mm anti-capitalism. And we thought that that was a big mistake. (laughs) So we, we love the Catholic worker movement. I consider myself a Catholic worker. I root myself there. In the Catholic worker movement, there is a strong anti-capitalist analysis. There is a strong systemic critique. The Catholic worker movement is a little bit more ambivalent or a little bit more nervous to touch issues of gender and sexuality, for instance. Mm -hmm. Not every Catholic worker house, the Catholic worker movement is anarchist, each house is autonomous, but the national publication, the national worker, and and some Catholic workers, they're just not engaged in church reform in the same way that organizations like Call to Action, Women's Ordination Conference, these post-Vatican II organizations do church reform. Mm -hmm. The Catholic worker does something else. 
the Catholic worker does mutual aid, the Catholic worker does direct action. So Cass and I were looking at both of these things and thinking, we wish that there were something that brought these together. We wish that there were a Catholic space that presumed an anti-capitalist critique and presumed a post-Vatican II church reform analysis. So, <laughs> Wow, that's a, a, ambitious. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm being long-winded. No. No, not at all. This is what we want to hear about. Yeah. Well, we were like, that doesn't... We want to we want to make more of that. Yeah. So we decided to make this zine. <laughs> awesome. And a zine feels very up the anarchist counterculture realm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of Catholic worker houses produce newsletters, sort of like DIY newsletters. Uh-huh. Some of them print their print a newspaper, like the New York Worker prints the Catholic Worker newspaper. But a lot of them do these sort of like zine like publications where they're photocopying things and yes. copying and pasting and everything. So it, it felt very much within that tradition. And we wanted to make something that would be accessible to people across generational divides. Mm-hmm. Like we wanted to make something that wasn't just online because we wanted younger people to read it, but we also wanted our Catholic worker friends to read it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our Catholic worker friends probably would be more likely to pick up a hard copy of something. Mm. Yeah. So that's why we settled on a zine. Can I, I'm going to ask this because I know my dad listens to this podcast. Can you define what a zine is for our, some of our audience? Dad? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for Steph's dad. Yeah. A zine is basically just a small booklet. It's a DIY. It's a, it's a little small booklet that you make yourself. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it, that you can fold it. You can just staple pages together. But the the gist of it is that it's something that, you know, just anybody like me, just a teenager, anybody with access to a printer or a scanner can make a zine. You don't have to go through a publishing house. You don't have to submit your work to a magazine. It's radical in that you can do it yourself. There's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. So so in the 90s, zines were a big thing and like punk culture, like rebellious kids would, you know, make zines and swap their ideas through zines. So it's just like a little mini handmade magazine, basically. I love it. And one of my favorite parts about zines in the 90s and yours is the artwork always. Mm-hmm. The sort of collage aesthetic is is prevalent. Who's in charge of your artwork? Well, Tess and I are sort of the masterminds behind the whole thing. But the, the cover art of the first edition um, was made by someone named Emma Wansil, who is a very talented artist involved with Call to Action. Great. I love the cover. Who, yeah, I connected with through Call to Action. And she, yeah, she just... She just sent us that. We talked to her about what we might like, and she pulled that together. I think it's great. Brilliant. I love that. Thank you. And I know from following you on social media that you put out calls for stories. So that's part of the aesthetic, right? That uh, anyone could write. Anyone could submit something to you. Anyone can write. Yeah. We've had a little trouble soliciting for this uh, next edition. I think that Tess and I are thinking about doing a lot, some more targeted invitations to people because Mm -hmm. we... We're, we're sort of recruiting from a small niche, mm-hmm. but we, yes, we do. We do want to invite anybody to submit. That's great. Our listeners are sort of a small niche, so yes. <laughs> we can put all the information at the end of this episode if folks want to reach out to you to, Thank you. And, to fi- and to, you know, and to read the zine, which I'm sure many folks will. What are your long-term goals for the project? Well, we've only published one 
edition of the zine so far. Mm -hmm. We are working on our second, I guess it's issue, working on the second issue of the zine, which is focused on Catholicism and labor. Mm -hmm. That's something that Tess has a little bit more experience than me with, but we are both strong believers in labor unions and we're interested in hearing perspectives about the intersection of Catholicism and labor. Mm. So whether that looks like labor organizers in secular spaces who happen to be Catholic and happen to root their organizing in their Catholicism, or people who are working in Catholic spaces and dealing with all of the challenges of labor justice in a Catholic space, we're interested in all those sorts of perspectives for this issue of the zine. I really wish we had the time for you to like come out here and interview my area because I'm in this steel mill town. So it's like mm -hmm. unions are very important and it's heavily Catholic. There's Catholic churches, just you can't, they're all across the street from each other, depending on what ethnicity sure. you, you emigrated uh, into or from. So it's just, it's, it's an interesting intersection. I'm very, I'm fascinated. So I can't wait to read this one. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that we have that in common. I, well, I grew up in a very, not where I live now, but I grew up in a very Catholic part of Chicago and a very, very union heavy part of Chicago. A lot of union workers. Sure. But I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like there was a lot of critical looking at that intersection. It was just. Uh, there are two realities. <laughs> there's a lot of interesting history, right, within yeah. the U.S. of that maybe just Catholic immigrants were often folks who ended up joining unions. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which is, or forming unions, really, from the start. So that is a pretty interesting history there. Yeah, we're hoping to get some voices that engage engage with that intersection. Yeah. And then just in the future, we're not sure, but we want to keep doing it. We want to publish further issues on different themes. And we, we've brainstormed lists of possibilities, but we, we just want to have different issues that focus on different facets of the intersection between leftist analysis and Catholicism. I have a question about the name of the zine. Mm -hmm. So the Catholic left is a phrase I think a lot of people have heard, but left Catholic actually makes me feel like I've left Catholic. So is right. that intentional that it's yeah. got the lapsed vibe in there a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that it's, it's meant to be interpreted. It's meant okay. to obviously to reference leftist anti-capitalist analysis. You could interpret it as left as in left the Catholic church, mm -hmm. or you could interpret it as left behind. Mm. In the Catholic Church, Zach Johnson, who used to work with us at CTA, I believe he helped us brainstorm this this name, and I, I like it a lot because it, it it leaves a lot to the imagination. <laughs> it's evocative for sure. I really like it too. I'm a fan. Thank you. What kind of feedback have you gotten on your first uh, issue? A lot of the Catholic workers have really liked it. Tess lived at Mary House for a while after I did, and. She brought lots and lots of copies to Mary House. And at Mary House, there, there are a lot of people who have been deeply rooted in the Catholic worker movement for many years. People who knew Dorothy Day, people who have been around since the 70s, the 80s. And I really appreciated that a lot of them liked it. Yeah. Felt good to get that affirmation from them. Nice. We've sent copies of it to other Catholic worker houses, and we have put it out through Call to Actions Network. So we finished up the first issue 
right when I was about to transition from my role at Call to Action to my new role at DePaul. So Call to Action sponsored the first issue and we posted it on their website. They gave us some funding and we sent it out to Call to Action's mailing list. So I really liked that we were able to get it in the hands of basically just both of our target audiences. We, we got it to the Catholic workers and we got it to the church reform audience too through Call to Action. Hopefully in the true nature of zines, it'll like have its own life out there of people passing it around. Yeah, I hope so. You never know where it could end up. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. When we posted it, we gave instructions for how you could print it out, but we also have an online version so people can just flip through it online. Great. I think often about this perception that I think a lot of people have of the Catholic church as being one thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Catholic means universal, right? I feel like people outside the Catholic church see the Catholic church as particularly unified because <laughs> mass looks right. the same everywhere you go. And because, you know, obviously this is a long time ago, but like reading that, like when Kennedy became president, people were like, well, he's just going to listen to the Pope because that's what Catholics do. They all believe exactly the same thing. It's whatever the Pope says. Uh, so we can't have a Catholic president. Right. But clearly looking at like looking at something like what you are doing or what some of the contributors are putting in left Catholic, some of the contributors who do still identify as Catholic. Um, and then you look at something like something I was not even familiar with really up until recently on the internet, which is like sort of the rad trad tradition, like this radical mm -hmm. traditionalist, uber conservative Catholic. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of variety there. I often wonder like, is there like a common thread even Catholicism in my mind actually feels more polarized than ever. And maybe that's just our current culture. I don't know if you have thoughts on all that. I have too many thoughts. I don't know if they're <laughs> cohesive. <laughs> well, something my partner always says that annoys me, but I think it's true. That's the best. That's what we need our partners for. In the tradition of partners, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I say something like, oh, this person is so Catholic, Something like that. He gets annoyed, right? He's calling me out if I'm saying that the definition of Catholic is in relation to the church hierarchy, mm. right? And it's it's language that we slip into all the time. And we know what it means, right? If I say, oh, that girl over there, she's so Catholic. I mean that she goes to a canonical Catholic mass, that she is invested in the traditions and the practices of the canonical Catholic church, that sort of thing, right? She gets like, those ashes on her forehead. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Maybe maybe she's she wears her chapel veil, you know. Right? <laughs> oh, man, yes. Old school. Yeah. Another yeah. level, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know what that means. But mm -hmm. Dominic, my partner, really pushes back on that. And I think it's it's true because in the church reform movement, we say again and again, we are the church, right? The mm -hmm. people, the mm -hmm. people are the church. The hierarchy is not the church, but we slip into that language all the time. Absolutely. So I just mentioned this because, yeah, I think that the church, the church, the people are really polarized. I think the United States is really polarized. I think like the world is really polarized. And there is a lot of tension and disagreement and dissent and unrest, basically. Mm -hmm. But I guess I just want to emphasize that that is, that is in the church, as in that it's like in the people. I like that a lot. I think I'm sitting here for our listeners. I'm bouncing my baby. Um, <laughs> he keeps waking up from his nap while we're doing this. And, you know, we just had the holidays. And so there, the question of his baptism came up eventually at some point with extended family. And I keep talking to them. I just, one of the reasons I became lapsed is that I, 
I always felt like I didn't see myself in the church. Like I don't belong here because I identified the church the way you're just saying. I was like, that's Catholicism and I'm not, that's not who I am. And so I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. So I must leave. It's a lot of how that, that feels. And so that conversation came up a lot over the holidays and it still feels really radical to even hear you say that. And it shouldn't, it really shouldn't because the church doesn't exist without the people in it and all of the people in it, not just some of them, but it's, it feels so, it just feels like a a new idea and it's hard to have that conversation sometimes with family who do still identify the church with the hierarchy as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a real, it's a really hard thing to unlearn. Yes. Yeah. I am curious about the intentional community that you live in mm. and are a part of. Yeah. Can you talk more more about that and your decision to to live there? Yeah. So I have lived in four different communities. I have lived in two Catholic worker houses and then an intentional community in grad school and now this house. I moved into this community after the most recent Catholic worker community that I lived in had a lot of issues and I decided that it just wasn't tenable for me to keep living there. Mm. I had moved to Chicago to live at that Catholic worker house and to be in the same city as my partner. And I really wanted to have community. I like living with other people. I, at some point after college, I did an internship where I lived by myself for a summer and I felt very lonely and I concluded I don't want to live by myself. So I have enjoyed living in intentional community. And when this Catholic worker house did not work out for me, I sort of looked around, fished around, tried to figure out what to do next. And the fireplace where I live was started by people who had connections to call to action where I was working. So I visited, I looked into it. It was not that far away from me, about 10 blocks from where I was staying with my partner. And I really loved it. It felt very homey. One of the things that we emphasize at the fireplace is that community is an antidote or yeah, antidotes. I was going to say anecdote. It's always a hard one. (laughs) Community is an antidote to burnout. Community prevents burnout and can help recovery from burnout. And I was feeling really burnt out from, from this experience at a Catholic worker house, from other experiences in radical spaces. I was feeling really exhausted and sad. In a lot of ways. And coming into this community, I felt embraced. I felt like it could be a place for restoration and healing. And the community has an emphasis on that. It also has an emphasis on the arts, which I really like. So I moved in. I moved in in December 2021. So it's been just over a year that I've lived there. It's a new community. It started in earlier in 2021. So the five of us who live there are still sort of the founding members. We're figuring a lot of things out about what it means to live in community. It's a Catholic-rooted community, and two of the residents are Franciscan sisters, and the other three of us are younger laywomen in our 20s with all sorts of different relationships to Catholicism. I would say there's a whole spectrum there. Not all of us go to church. Some of them go to church very consistently, right? There's a lot of diversity in how we express our Catholicism, but I have found it to be a really positive and nourishing space for me at a time when I really needed it. I love that. Yeah. Found families are very important. Um, so that's, that's great. Yeah. And it's aside from just the five of us, it's a very active space. We have dinners and prayer every Tuesday and Thursday. 
that are open to our extended community. So there are lots of people who live in the neighborhood, who live elsewhere in Chicago, who come and visit us, connect with us. We have rooms where people come and stay for retreats. So hospitality is one of our central values. And I really like having a place where I just, I get to meet cool people, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) people of all sorts of different religious and non-religious backgrounds, artists, organizers. I, I, I just get to meet a lot of really cool people in my house, and I love that. That's great. <laughs> Is your family surprised at where you've ended up? I mean, this I, I think the community you're talking about now <laughs> versus the community you talked about you were raised in Catholicism-wise is so different. So I'm curious what their reaction has been to your trajectory. My parents are supportive but confused, I think. <laughs> as are many parents of a lot of young adults I think yeah yeah I don't think they totally get it I don't think they expected this at all I don't think they expected me to move across the country or have a job where I take students to El Salvador which I did last month or I don't think they expected most things that I've ended up doing (laughs) they're interested they they try to understand but I would say that people in my family they just don't have the context for what I'm doing sure Mm mm-hmm I think of even just going visiting my hometown. I dread going home to my hometown and getting a haircut because then <laughs> then they ask me about what I'm what oh, what do you do where do you live right. and, and then I tell them and and then they just sort of like they say oh okay they change the subject they don't know what to make of it so a lot of people don't know what to make of it people in my family my grandmother for instance over Christmas my mom was talking about a young guy she knows who who's becoming a priest he's pretty conservative he wants to enter seminary. And my grandmother's like, oh, that's so beautiful. I have chills. And I was sitting there in the other room thinking, I bet you didn't get chills when I went to seminary. <laughs> but I, I, I just don't think she has the context for it or understand, understands what it means at all. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think just a lot of people in my life, in my home context, are, don't, don't totally get it, yeah. which makes it hard to feel like I totally belong there. Right. But then it also makes it hard to feel like I totally belong in these cities where I've lived because mm-hmm. I I'm a country girl I I have right. sort of yeah I, I I do feel like I'm sort of in between I very much feel that I've sort of done the opposite I was like I was telling you before we started recording I used to live in Chicago and now I'm kind of living a more a rural lifestyle and it's hard because it feels like to me everyone should have equitable access to these ideas and programs um, and it's so hard because it feels it feels much easier to just not talk about this stuff in certain communities that don't have the context. It's like, oh, do I want to open this up <laughs> or do I just nod and keep going uh, with right. what's the status quo here? <laughs> it's easier to nod a lot of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels sad, mm-hmm. but it, it is easier. <laughs> Anything else we didn't talk about that you want to share? You know, this is a half-baked thought. This is, this is just something I was... You know, okay, maybe I shouldn't say it because I don't want to come across as historically clueless. But yesterday, you know, I work at DePaul. DePaul is a Catholic university. I've been mm-hmm. specifically been sent in Catholic university. So I was attending a talk yesterday where we were learning about some facets of Vincentian history. And Vincentian means uh, relating to St. Vincent de Paul, the founder of this order of priests, the Congregation of the Mission that founded DePaul, right? So St. Vincent de Paul, St. Louis de Marillac, who founded the Order of Sisters that goes along with the Order of Priests. You know, they're sort of like the founding figures of DePaul. They lived 400 years ago in France. So anyway, (laughs) so we're talking about France 400 years ago in this talk that I attended yesterday. And the priest who who was sharing with us said something about how 
in France, in Europe, in the 1600s or so, the priest was based in a larger town. And then the people who lived outside of the town, who lived like way out in the countryside, they were called like the Paganis or something like that. They were like the pagans, right? Mm. And, and if they wanted to attend church, they had to go into the town. And maybe that was hard for them. Maybe that wasn't something they were able to do. And what, one of St. Vincent de Paul's big things was trying to make the tradition of Catholicism accessible to the, the peasants, to the rural people who were Catholic, but just like because of their poverty, didn't have access to the rituals and the mass and whatever. Anyway, so hearing that story, I was thinking, wow, I wonder if throughout the church's history, Catholics just haven't been that great at providing resources to rural people. Mm-hmm. That's sort of an idea that I'm, I don't know, thinking about right now. I, I think it's an issue. I think it's, yes. I think it's a real problem that, that we don't know how to build community in rural places. We don't know how to build church community. Um, a lot of rural places struggle to find community at all. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a question that I'm interested in continuing to explore in my life. And I thought about potentially starting a Catholic worker house in Vermont, where I'm from. We'll see, maybe someday. But right. yeah, that's just that's just a half baked thought I wanted to share. Since we were talking about that right. urban rural yes. divide, I just think that yeah, a lot of rural communities are really underserved. People mm-hmm. when people think here that I'm from Vermont, they think I, you know, I'm from like a liberal enclave, but that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. I'm from a county that's fairly like purple in terms of like went for Trump in 2016, went for Biden in 2020. I'm from a county where there's a lot of opioid addiction, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think people have a very poor understanding of rural America. Yeah. And that includes Catholics. I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but anyway, just especially based on what you, Seth, were talking about, you know, it's like, yeah, that that just came to mind. (laughs) Well, I just, I'm really excited to see what you continue to do. And hopefully we may even have you back on here to hear about any of this, this continued work. I'm very excited by everything you're talking about. Thank you. (laughs) I feel like I do a disservice because like when I talk about rural America, again, I feel like everyone's like pastures and corn. And I'm like, my rural America is in this, it's still like mill town, right? There's a bunch of different ways of looking at it. Um, And it's not just one, one picture. Absolutely. Okay. So if people want to get their hands on the zine, where do they do that? So we have a website, which I can um, give you to link if that's okay. Of course. You can probably just Google left Catholic zine. You can find us on Instagram. Tess keeps our Instagram pretty active and the Instagram links to it. So we're, we're left Catholic on Instagram. Great. I give Tess our best, please. We're sad we were not able to have her on this as well due to technical difficulties. She's welcome anytime she wants yeah. to come later. Maybe when, you know, as your as your zine just grows and grows and you become mega popular, remember us. We like to end with a special collection where we encourage listeners to uh, donate money somewhere. Is there anywhere that you would like to suggest? Yeah, so Tess suggested a strike fund for the UMWA, and I'll send you that, for mine workers who are minor strike in Alabama who need a little extra support for their strike efforts. And I I will send that link along to you. Great. Thank you. Well, I think that's it for today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We will end as we always end. So uh, Steph and Abby, and also with you. Also with you, Anne. (laughs) Thanks so much for being here, Abby. Pleasure talking with you, Abby. Thank you.